Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this Sabbath day. And though the precious hours are coming to a close, Lord, this just brings us another week where we can work for you once again. So Lord, keep us to be faithful, help us to be faithful, and make us useful for your cause. And Lord, help us to become citizens of your kingdom, even now, as we look forward to and hasten your soon coming, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. This great epiphany came to me from Desire of Ages, page 20, the very opening chapter, the very opening uh, paragraphs. And the grand opus on the life of Christ, the desire of ages, we read, There is nothing, save the selfish heart of man, that lives unto itself. Okay? And then she starts talking about the birds and the trees, and you'll see. No bird that cleaves the air, no animal that moves upon the ground, but ministers to some other life. There is no leaf of the forest or a lowly blade of grass, but has its ministry. Every tree and shrub and leaf pours forth that element of life without which neither man nor animal could live. And man and animal, in turn, minister to the life of tree and shrub and leaf. And you have to understand, this is uh, telling the story of the life of Jesus. Why is she talking about trees and shrubs and leaves? She continues. The flowers breathe fragrance and unfold their beauty and blessing to the world. The sun sheds its light to gladden a thousand worlds. The ocean itself, the source of all of our springs and fountains, receives the streams from every land but takes to give. The, the mists ascending from its bosom fall in showers to water the earth that it may bring forth and bud. So she's talked all about those natural things. Very next paragraph. The angels of glory find their joy in giving. So we've gone from trees and shrubs and flowers and birds up to the angels. The angels of glory find their joy in giving, giving love and tireless watch care to souls that are fallen and unholy. Heavenly beings woo the hearts of men. They bring to this dark world light from the courts above. By gentle and patient ministry, they move upon the human spirit to bring the lost into fellowship with Christ, which is even closer than they themselves can know. Next paragraph. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God. Now she's about to define. Here's what the glory of God is. It is the glory of our God to give. It's interesting. This grand opus on the life of Christ, she said, here's the great theme. The glory of God is to give. I can do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not mine own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. Now, here's the sentence that kind of floored me. And maybe it was just me, maybe it's not significant for you, but here it is. In these words is set forth the great principle which is the law of life for the universe. So right in the middle of her diatribe about flowers and shrubs and trees and birds and mists ascending and angels descending and all these different things, she says, and now we turn to Jesus and we say that giving is the great law of life for the universe. 
all things Christ received from God, but he took to give. Now she's describing something here, and this is the constant, this is the continuing theme between the flowers and shrubs and trees and the angels and now Jesus. She said the common bond between everything in God's created universe, and she includes animate and inanimate, sentient or otherwise, everything God has designed in this universe to receive from something else and then give to something else. To receive, to give, is the great principle, the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all, and through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And I love this sentence. And thus through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete representing the character of the great, capital G, giver, the law of life. The law of life, according to Mrs. White, is this receiving to give. And she describes it in that marvelous phrase, a circuit of beneficence. Now, beneficence and benevolence, these are not terms that we often think of today, but it simply means the doing of good for others. Benefiting someone else besides yourself. Giving. And she describes it as a circuit where this one takes and then it gives. And then this one takes and it gives. And the whole thing is a completed circuit with Christ as its, its, its main focus. This, he receives from the Father, he gives away, and it comes back around through Christ. And that's what she calls the circuit of beneficence, the great law of life. Now, if I don't know that I would have thought of that. I would have thought, well, obviously the great law of the universe is love. Right? God operates on love. But that kind of begs the question, what is love? Well, let's do a quick Bible study and figure out if we can understand biblically what the definition of love is and does it harmonize with Mrs. White's talking about shrubs and trees and flowers and angels and birds and Jesus. Does it all fit together? What is love and how does it work together? Well, in 1 John, first of all, we have to understand, and in 1 John, twice... The apostle refers to God not only as lovely or loving, but he says God is what? Love. God is love itself. God is love. So what is, what is love? What does that mean for us? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. I say it like that because you always hear it in the context of human affection and weddings and all these things. But I think that there's something bigger in mind than just natural affection here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Notice as we start going through here, uh, you'll start to pick up a theme. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll start to verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and of course, verse 8, love never fails. Notice that love does not envy. And envy is wanting stuff for whom? For yourself, right? Love does not parade itself. That means to show off for itself. 
Love is not puffed up. Puffed up is arrogance, boastfulness, to think big things about yourself. Love does not seek its own. Simply means it puts the interests of others ahead of itself. Apparently, love, according to the biblical definition, is a life of selflessness, putting others ahead of yourself. Basically, true love gives for others instead of taking for itself. And you'll notice that this manifestation of love is not just natural affection, and it's not simply a goodwill towards others or a cheerful disposition. Those things are very lovely and loving, but love itself is deeper than that. Love always manifests itself in an action. You've got to do, right? It's something manifest. It's something demonstrative. For instance, you don't, probably don't even have to look it up, but it's in your Bible. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so what? That he, notice that love results in giving. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Galatians chapter 2, let's look at another one. The Apostle Paul, the author of our love chapter there, goes on to explain Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And now he's going to say, who is the Son of God? In the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. Gave of himself. By the way, this is a fantastic, just a little aside, this is a wonderful, wonderful theological foundation for the divinity of Jesus Christ. Right? If God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, and love is the principle of giving of yourself, if God had to create something to send, he's not sending himself. And actually, it would be boasting. It would actually be, it would actually be um, promoting Satan's lies about God. Satan said, God is a withholder. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's not self-sacrificing. If God said, I am too self-sacrificing, look, I'll create someone and go send him to die. That wouldn't make sense. But if Jesus Christ is one with the Father, if they are co-eternal persons, one God and three persons, and he sent his Son, which is an extension of himself, that's truly self-sacrificing love. Jesus, which by the way is why, not only because you know sheep and goats and bulls can't take away sins, but why an angel's life couldn't sacrifice suffice either. Friends, we didn't just need a sinless sacrifice. Think about it. An angel has never sinned, but still could not be our sacrifice, or could not be our savior. Because the argument wasn't with the angels, it was with God himself. So God himself gives of himself in his only begotten son. God so loved the world that he gave. When God gave Jesus, it was actually something from him. And by the way, it doesn't say that God so loved the world that he loaned. Or he let borrow. Or he donated for a time. Friends, Jesus Christ was given as a gift to humanity. 
He is our brother for eternity. And as ironic and unfair as it is, he's the only, we get new bodies, right? Praise the Lord, I'm, we're getting new bodies. But Jesus Christ will have scars. For God so loved the world that he gave of himself. And that's what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 2. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice also, apparently God the Father gave his only begotten Son, but the Son gave himself. They were together in this. It's fascinating. Ephesians chapter 5, just turn to the book, one book to the right, in talking about practical uh, manifestations of this love, he counsels husbands and wives. Chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And he says, to what extent? Just as Christ also loved whom? The church and did what? Gave himself for her. Love always results in giving. True love doesn't take. True love gives. True love is self-sacrificing. Of course, Jesus himself explained that in John chapter 15 and verse 13. John chapter 15 and verse 13. He says, greater love has no one than this. He said, if you want to know what real love is about, the nth degree, great, there is no way to top this kind of love. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down what? One's life for his men. The entirety of all you are, your entire life, lay it down for someone else. That's the apex of love. The zenith of love is selflessness, self-sacrifice for others. Thus, when we go to the, to the epistle of 1 John, not the gospel of John, 1 John. You know, I told you about that Bible study uh, interest that uh, we got the, uh, a few months ago, and She's not particularly familiar with all the books in the Bible. And I told her to go to 1 John, and she said, now that, is that the big John? Or is that one of the little Johns? That's one of the little Johns, okay. So go to the first little John, chapter 4, and verse 7. And notice the logic that's employed here. Beloved, let us do what? Love whom? One another. Why? For love is of God. Think about the logic of this. If you claim to be of God, and God is love, then you better love one another, because God is love. So simple, so logical. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, I've met plenty of Christians who claim to know God, but are not particularly loving. Now, I'm not calling them a liar, but biblically, there should be some evidence of love in your life if you claim to know God, because God is love. It just simply makes sense. Let us love one another, for love is of God. Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting with verse 1. And again, Paul comes back to this idea of love leads to selflessness and putting others first. 
Philippians 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, right? if you have been comforted in, in the love of Christ, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And notice how he says, here's how you be loving. Verse 3, let nothing be done through what? Selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is not a flight of fancy. It's not a feeling. It's not a natural affection. It's a deep-seated theological principle that governs God's universe that lets you receive to give. By the way, this is embedded in the law of God, if you notice. When Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look closely at the law of God, and this is probably commonly understood, but the first table of the law outlines how you give to God. Right? You give honor, you give respect, you remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, those kind of things. You outline how you love God. The last six outline how you love other people. But you know what there isn't? There is not a third table of the law that outlines how you love you. Right? There is no 11th commandment that says, you know, watch out for number one. Right? How do you say it? You do you. Right? <laughs> You just be, whatever you want to do, you do it, you take care of yourself, you be about number one, you take care of your own. That's not in God's law anywhere. Think about it. Who takes care of you according to God's law? Well, I mean, it sounds good, right? But there's nowhere written in it who takes care of you at all. It's just you take care of others. It's an implied, if you take care of others, well, somebody else is going to take, you don't worry about who takes care of you, you just take care of others. Right? It's fascinating. And Jesus said, love. And that's why the Apostle Paul can talk about how love is the fulfillment of the law. It's the grand central principle of the universe, period. Now, the great difference, well, let's look at one more text. Chapter 16 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. I really appreciate this one. The very first duty of the Christian. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, look at his very first word, let him deny what? Himself. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. If you're going to follow Christ, you have to deny yourself. Self has to be left in the dust, and then you walk with Christ. Self has to be left in the dust. You know, aside, I was going to say, from the great chasm that is the difference between the creature and the creator, the big difference between Christ and Satan, aside from the creator-created divide, the great difference between Christ and Satan is Christ is selfless, 
Satan is selfish. And every other thing in the universe, the entire great controversy is a war over this single, which idea will win? Which governing principle of the universe will win out? Selflessness or selfishness? Okay? Let me illustrate this. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, as the prophet recalls the fall of Lucifer, he's considering it. Verse 12, Isaiah chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For, here's why he was cut down to the ground. He was what was going on inside of him. For you have said, and by the way, where was he saying these things? In your heart. These were not necessarily overt things. And I'm going to take a guess that there's, there is stuff going on in your mind right now, perhaps even, that's not being shown on your face. That you could probably be thinking either wonderful thoughts or terrible thoughts or completely not thinking about what's going on here thoughts, right? But the whole time, I mean, you've, you've sat in classes enough. You know how to develop this face. Like, oh, I'm totally interested. Yeah. But you have no clue, right? Now, apparently, Satan was saying this in his heart. And what were the things going on in his heart? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I, I, I. That's been said, you know, Satan had an I problem. Self. But now we go back to Philippians chapter 2, and we look at the difference between that selfishness and the selflessness of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And we're encouraged, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Right? He didn't have to show off. He knew exactly who it was. If you notice, people who are confident in themselves don't have to talk about themselves all the time. Jesus Christ didn't walk around. Hi, by the way, I don't know. If, did you notice I'm the son of God? Did you? I don't know if you, you probably didn't know. I'm pretty humble. Um, you know, <laughs> if you have to tell people you're humble, that's not humble, right? He didn't ever flex that muscle. He never had to show it off. He never had to say, like, you, you probably know my dad. You never, never, right? Who being in form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He knew exactly who he was. I didn't have to flex for it or stretch for it. But made himself of what? Uh. You know, in the age of social media and Facebook and Twitter and whatever the flitter, Twitter flip things are out there, everyone wants to make a name for themselves. Everyone has to have an image, a reputation, you know, a, a, a look to them, a, a sound to them. They want to seem poetic or sporty or whatever, sassy. I don't know what they want, Right? But everybody wants to be kind of known as a, have an image. Christ had none of that. He made himself of no reputation. Just a plain guy. Taking the form of a bond servant. 
and coming in the likeness of men. And this is not man in his original Edenic glory. This is 4,000 years of sin, man. Which the original would have been a step down for Christ, right? But this one, that's really what you want to, you know. Isaiah talks about him being like a root out of dry ground. You know, that's not pretty. But he wasn't here to be prettiest. He was here to show us what God's character looked like. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The great difference between Christ and Satan, besides the creature-creator divide, is Christ operates exclusively on a platform of selflessness. And Lucifer, Satan, operates exclusively on a platform of selfishness. Christ would give everything, including his own life, if it were necessary. Where Satan would take everything, including Christ's life, if it were necessary, to accomplish his aims. This is the great divide. And each one of our characters will be formed after one of the or the other. We will become either more like Jesus and his selflessness or more like Satan and his selfishness. These are the only two options. Thus Paul can talk about you will either be a slave to Christ or a slave to sin. You're going to conform. You're going to obey. You're going to bow down to someone, something. So which will it be? And Paul urges, let this mind be in you. As though we have a choice about it, by the way. We're not predestined to be either this one or the other. Though Christ would love us to become conformed to the image of his son, he doesn't go with force. He allows us to see, look, here's what selflessness looks like. Here's what selfishness looks like. You choose whom you will serve. It's fascinating. By the way, speaking of this great law of the universe, continuing on, Desire of Ages, page 21, we read, In heaven itself, this law was broken. Sin originated in self-seeking. Lucifer, the covering cherub, desired to be first in heaven. He sought to gain control of heavenly beings, to draw them away from their creator, and to win their homage to himself. Thus, he put a short in the circuit of beneficence. Remember, everything else gives to, I mean, receives to give, receives to give. At some point, he started just receiving to receive. And it wasn't flowing back to the Lord. Like, his position was the, the covering cherub, the right-hand man of God, if you will. And he was the praise, and all the praise would ascend back, and he was supposed to present it to the Father. And at some point, he just kind of, I want some of that for me. And he started taking for himself selfishness. In fact, in Manuscript Release, Volume 3, page 331, we read this beautiful little four-word sentence. All sin is selfishness. All sin is selfishness. You name it, you can think of any sin you want, and it falls under the heading selfish. You did that because you wanted it. And it might have me more extreme forms of abuse or everything, or just little things like little petty theft or little this or that. But you 
wanted something different than what God said or what, what, what devotion to God would be or devotion to other people would be. You didn't want one of those things, but instead you wanted for you that sin. All sin is selfishness. That's why the title of tonight's message is Sin is a Four-Letter Word, Self. Sin is selfishness. Now, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll start with verse 1. When you talk about signs of the times, signs of the Lord's return, signs of the second coming, at least I can't speak for you, but I know that my mind often goes to natural disasters, right? Earthquakes, hurricanes, or political and military unrest, wars and rumors of wars. And those are very, very valid. Pestilence, disease, all kinds of things. But I want to show you this sign of the time that may not always get the attention that the other ones do. And it's here, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But know this. By the way, if the scripture says to know this, what should we do? We We should know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. And again, I'm thinking, ah, oh, there it is, earthquakes and, and, and wars and, and disease. For men will be lovers of, what's that thing? Themselves. He's like, oh, it's going to be terrible in the last days. Men will be lovers of themselves. And then everything else that falls out of that seems to be the result of that self-love. which there's a great discussion to have. Is love for yourself really love if love is the principle of giving to others? By the way, another great, great thought about the, um, the Godhead, good argument for the Trinity. If God is love and love is the principle of putting others first, then he cannot be a rigid singularity. You need others to be loved. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's not like God became love once he created something to love. He'd always been love. It's who he is in his very essence, and love requires others. It's fascinating. Anyway. For men will be lovers of themselves, and it goes on to list this incredible list of vices, Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pleasure for themselves. You either love God and his law or you're going to love yourself and out of it comes all this stuff. Now, notice there's a direct application to our times. It says, in the last days, these perilous times will come. And I'm not saying that people will only start discovering to love themselves at the end time. But apparently, it will, just like the other signs of the time, become more intense, be more explosive. It will be just more obvious. Men will be lovers of themselves. In our day, this is what we should be seeing. And notice that, again, selfishness seems to be the root of all these satanic fruits. But also notice that it's not talking about the heathen or the pagan or the ungodly being like this. Because it says, oh, verse 5, 
having a form of what? Godliness. On the outside, all dressed enough for church. Good to see you. Good evening. Happy Vespers or whatever. Having a form of godliness, going through the routine, but inside, they're lovers of themselves, boasters, proud, all blasphemous, unthankful, unholy, unloving, blah, 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 blah. But on the outside, they have a form of godliness. It sounds very, very, very much like their spiritual forefather, Lucifer himself, who said in his heart, I. Yet he was an ordained minister in the courts of heaven. But I will ascend, I will exalt, I will do this on the inside in his heart. And apparently in the last days, there will be a complete manifestation of the character. And oftentimes we think there will be a complete manifestation of the character of God. But friends, there will also be a complete manifestation of the character of Satan in the last days. We're all looking for like, oh, there's going to be a final generation who will represent the character of God. And I absolutely believe there's going to be a people who represent the character of God. But you have to understand, to the same degree that they represent the character of God, there will be a full development of the character of Satan in this world. And Paul says, in those days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, yet it will be dressed up as godly. They claimed Christianity, but in no way Christ-like. Now, on the other hand, let's go to the book of Revelation. In the midst of this self-loving form of godliness, everything seems great. The whole world's okay with it. In fact, that's the whole trend of the world. Self, 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 self. You know, if you, you start thinking about, again, going back to social media and all these things, everything is about, I'm going to talk about myself, take a picture of myself, looking at myself in the mirror of myself, myself, myself. Uh, it's ridiculous. You go down there and it's like, here's my, here's my blog about me and a picture of me that I took of me in a mirror looking at me and I'm going to write about me and here's a tag me and oh, I see a picture. I look through all the pictures. I'm not looking for other stuff. I'm looking for me so I can point out me, 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 right. Mercy. However, Revelation chapter 12, remember Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, and they would lay down their life, right? Lay down his life. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 speaks of a faithful few who it records, describes as they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Again, it comes back to that premise. Witnessing to other people is a salvation for them and you, right? They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of the testimony, and they did not love what? Their lives. To what point? They're willing to give it up, right? Apparently in the church, with a form of godliness, there's going to be a selfishness that's satanic. Yet on the other hand, there's going to be a remnant who are going to represent the character of Christ and be selfless even unto death. Just a couple more statements. We're almost done. But I wanted to share this principle that has been, meant so much to me. In Acts of the Apostles, page 551, we read this statement. 
And if you ever want to know, like, how do I know that I've arrived? And, of course, you're never supposed to say, I've arrived, I'm Christ-like. But the completeness of Christian character is attained when? Isn't it nice to know what that rest of that sentence would be? You know, how do I know? The completeness of Christian character is attained when? The impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. It's a very simple premise. Christ-likeness is attained when you're like Christ. And apparently for Christ, the impulse to help and bless others springs forth constantly from within. That's just what it's about. That's his nature. That's his essence. That's his character. And the completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs forth constantly from within. It is the atmosphere of this love. Notice again, doing and blessing for others is defined as love. This love surrounding the soul of the believer that makes him a savor of life unto life and enables God to bless his work. Supreme love for God and unselfish love for one another. This is the best gift that our Heavenly Father can bestow. You know, we think about, Lord, I want power. I want this. I want that. Just ask for the love and character of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest gift you can ever bestow. Notice this. This love is not an impulse. It's like, oh, I'm going to go to GYC and I'm just going to feel, oh. That may be something, but that's not love. Right? It might be zeal. It might be excitement. It might be completely fine. But don't think that what you felt is love because love is not an impulse. Love is a decision. It's a principle. Love is not an impulse, but a divine principle, a permanent power. It's not fleeting. It's not fading. It's just who you are. The unconsecrated heart cannot originate it or produce it. Only in the heart where Jesus reigns is it found. We love him because he first loved us. In the heart renewed by divine grace, love is the ruling principle of action. The Apostle Paul says that we are, though living in this world, we are citizens of heaven. And I want to show you one of my favorite texts in Scripture. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Chapter 2. And I want you to notice this, this process language. This, it just notice how carefully worded it is. Beloved, now we are children of God. Right? If you come to Jesus Christ and ask to be his, repent of your sins and ask for a new start, he will give it to you. Now you are a child of God. And, but in addition to that, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So apparently you can be a child of God now and still be different later on. Do you see that? Beloved, now we are the children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But, he's like, so we don't know what the final product looks like, but we know this. But we know that when he is revealed, that's a reference to the second coming, we shall be what? Notice it doesn't say we, when he is revealed, we shall be made like him. That's not what it says. It simply says that we shall be 
like him. And why do we know that we'll be like him? For we shall see him as he is. That we'll be able to look on him and his holy character, and it will harmonize and resonate with the character we've developed here, and we can go from this world to the next seamlessly. So the the concept in life is this development of Christ-likeness. And at the brass tacks, it's its most core value. It is simply the principle of love. And love, at its most core value, is receiving from God and then giving to others. Receiving to give. 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 In fact, Mrs. White puts it so simply, she said, basically, in a paraphrase, the, the principle of Christ is give, give. And the ruling principle of Satan is get, get. That's the big difference. Are you a giver or a getter? That's the big difference. And apparently in heaven, we're all supposed to be givers. Let me illustrate this point. The story is told of, of a gentleman who was commissioned, an artist who was commissioned to paint a picture, well, not just one picture, actually two pictures, one picture of heaven and one picture of hell. Two paintings, one of heaven, one of hell. Go. So you had to think on this. What's, what's heaven and what's hell and how you illustrate it in a painting and how can I get this idea across? So he thought, and he's like, ah, I got it. So he starts drawing out a picture and painting it and getting all together. And he does them at the same time. And in one, he put a beautiful long, the one of hell, he puts this beautiful long banquet table. And in the one of heaven, he does this beautiful long banquet table. And he starts to develop, the, both of them had just beautiful, gorgeous trees and just everything is lovely. Animals are happy. Everything is great. Both pictures, the same thing. And on both of these tables, just piles of the most delicious vegan food you can think of. It's, it's just wonderful. Yeah, both heaven and hell, you know. And all of the good thing, everything good and lovely and glorious and splendors, everything that would just be Edenic and glorious and wonderful. Both pictures. Big banquet table. And around the banquet table, he drew people in both pictures. The big, in fact, the only difference, not the big difference, the only difference between the two paintings was the condition of the people. In hell, they were all like sour and skinny and emaciated and sickly and pale. Right. Really hoping this is just audio. Oh, it's video. All right. <laughs> you, right? Ever in heaven, though, everybody's, you know, Happy and joyous and, and, and rosy-cheeked and like, plump but not fat, you know what I'm saying? Just like healthy and radiant and just enjoying themselves full of vim and vigor and vitality. And What made the difference? Well, you have to understand the other thing. In both pictures, he gave both groups of people the same defect. There was a physical deformity that they both had in common. Neither group of people was born with operable elbows, right? They had a shoulder, 
They had wrists <laughs> and fingers. Just, I love that I chose this illustration on a video night. <laughs> All right. All right, the Lord's going to use it in spite. Here we go. All right, now. And what happened in hell was people would get the food, this glorious, splendid food, <laughs> and just couldn't make it work, you know? And they got angry. Oh, so I need it. I need it. And finally, exasperated. And they sulked in front of this banquet that they could not enjoy. Heaven, same problem. No elbows. You get it. I don't have to do it again. <laughs> they were all fat and happy. What made the difference? Yeah. They didn't miss a beat. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> they never once asked, who's going to take care of me? How are my needs going to be met? I don't know if I can eat that. Thank you. You too. Oh, you too. Can I get a napkin? Yeah, sure. And it's not a problem. You see, the physical makeup of heaven and hell or Christ and Satan that's not the big difference. The big difference is an inward difference. It's a character difference. One operates on a premise of selflessness, and one way operates on a premise of selfishness. And I'll tell you something very honestly, and not that, not that anything has been deceitful up to this point, but um, in all honesty, I'm a little bit sometimes just a touch concerned about our appeals to heaven. You know, you're going to go to heaven, and when you get there, you're going to get a mansion, and you're going to, streets of gold, and, and, and especially the children are like going to slide down the neck of a giraffe, or swim with a dolphin, or whatever the glory is. And I don't doubt that that will be there. That's fine. You know, we're going to get wings, we're going to travel, and those things are wonderful, but that surely cannot be our motive for going to heaven. The motive going to heaven is to be with Jesus because we come, become like Jesus, because heaven feels like home. Except now home is beautiful and glorious and it happens to come with a fantastic, you know, table of food and a mansion and, and it's got the giraffes and all the things there. But the primary motivation for heaven is not what I get for myself. It's because I've become Christ-like and that's where I would fit in with other people who are Christ-like. Think about this. In heavenly places, appropriately enough, in heavenly places, page 233, in heaven none will think of self, nor seek their own pleasure. We never read that statement when we talk about heaven. Because like, oh, oh, now maybe nobody wants to come. And think about it, folks, in all seriousness. If you found out that heaven was about, not about getting for you, but about giving for others, would you even want to go? The purpose of this life is to choose this day whom you will serve and what character you want to be formed after, what pattern you're going to mold your life after. Are you going to operate on a platform of selfishness to get, get, 
Or are you going to operate on a platform of selflessness to give, give? That's the big issue. And all of our doctrine, all of our theology, which I'm a huge fan of our doctrine and theology, but all of it leads to Jesus. And Jesus is love itself, love personified. In heaven, none will think of self nor seek their own pleasure, but all from pure, genuine love will seek the happiness of the heavenly beings around them. By the way, don't imply, oh, if I don't seek my own happiness, that I'm not going to be happy. Yes, you will. It's just somebody else is going to help you get there. And you're going to help them. Right? But all from pure, genuine love will seek the happiness of the heavenly beings around them. And notice this simple premise. If we wish to enjoy heavenly society in the earth made new, we must be governed by heavenly principles here. If we ever hope to enjoy heaven there, the society of angels, apparently we need to become like the prince of the angels, Jesus Christ himself, and develop that Christ-like character that doesn't seek for its own, but it gives for others. That's the great law of life. The great object of this life is the development of a Christ-like character We have to understand that salvation is not simply or merely a transaction that gets you in. But it's an entire transformation of character that gets you, that fits you in to the society of angels. It's not a transaction that gets you in, it's a a transformation that fits you. Physically, by the way, physically moving people from this planet to heaven, not a problem for the Lord. Right? Right? The transport process, piece of cake. And each one of us, praise the Lord, is going to get a new body. You know, I'm finally coming to the age. I could use one. Not against it. And a heavenly one, too. Taller and stronger and wings. I mean, it's great. But you won't be given a new character on the way up. Because character is not something that can be given. It has to be developed over time. And that's what this time is for. By the way, Satan has it out for young people. Both Christ and Satan understand the the validity of the truism that you only are young once. And both want to get stake their claim early on. So that Satan can start heading you down a path of self, 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 self. But Christ says, no, no, no. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. So that you become more like Christ over time. I'm going to make an appeal this evening as we close. If you respond to this appeal, I want to tell you what you'll be asked basically it's a two step appeal but first of all I I always ask this did it make sense what we talked about tonight did you understand the message okay good 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 Okay. now there's 
one appeal that's about you and your personal walk with Christ. And as a preacher of the gospel, I cannot leave a place without asking if there's someone who wants to either A, commit for the very first time to Jesus Christ and prepare to be baptized and join his body, or wants to recommit because you've wandered away and you realize you're more in that camp than you're in this camp. That's the first side. So if you would like to, there's going to be an appeal song played. And the first appeal is if you would like to either commit for the very first time or recommit in a more powerful, meaningful, significant way than you ever have before, during the appeal song that's going to be played, I'd like you to come down front. I want to have a special word of prayer with you. But if your walk with the Lord is just fine, but you want to see it strengthened, you want to see even more activity for it, and you want to find a way, Lord, how can I not only have this love as a theory in my mind, but how can I express it as a principle in my life? How can I take this theory and make it practical? How can I put some feet on my face and take it to the streets? Lord, I've been convicted by this weekend's messages that I need to be doing for others. I need to win a soul. I need to reach someone else. I don't want to go to heaven alone. I want to take somebody with me. And I don't know who they are yet, Lord, but you can point them out. If that's the desire of your heart and you want to learn more about some practical ways that you can be more involved with ministry, you can do something practical, tangible, you want to manifest that self-sacrificing love, that's also for you to come down. I'd like you to stand on this side of the aisle. So if it's practical that you're looking for, here. If it's a personal commitment or recommitment, right here. And if you don't fit any of those categories, that's fine too. We're not looking for that big moment on television where everybody goes streaming down. I mean, we could make a general appeal, but these are very specific tonight. And if you don't respond, it's fine. But if you want practical, Lord, teach me how to do for you instead of do for me. Come down here. And Lord, I need to recommit and perhaps even for the very first time, commit my life and get re-baptized over here. Praise the Lord. The song is going to play. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you oh, for so many things. Lord, you created us at all, and you redeemed us when we rebelled against you, and you certainly didn't have to do that. Lord, you love us, and you gave yourself for us, and for that there are some down here who want to commit some, perhaps even for the very first time, and others have drifted away and want to come back and make that commitment permanent. Lord, I want to thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. And I want to ask that you seal those commitments and let it blossom into full-blown Christianity lived out in every aspect of the life. And Lord, for those who have been walking with you, but now they want to understand more how to practically serve you, Lord, I would ask that you give them wisdom, that you give them opportunity, that you give them courage, and Lord, that you give them success as you define it. 
But Lord, help us to never become discouraged or disenchanted or help us to be never dissuaded from our mission. But help us to keep our eyes by faith on Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. That we may love others and give, if necessary, our lives for the cause of Christ. Lord, this prayer is sincere. And Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here who has a shortcoming that they want to just leave at the cross, that we do it tonight. We want to be pure in front of you tonight, Lord. But take these blank slates, these humble clay pots, and use them, break them if you have to. But let your light shine out so they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. To that end, Lord, we ask that you keep us faithful and make us useful as we not only look for but hasten the coming of Christ. And Lord, when that day comes, not if, but when that day comes, let not one be missing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.